Canopy man, canopy man Studies insects in the trees above your head Canopy man, canopy man Studies bugs in the trees above your head Welcome to Nature Revisited. Today, we continue the interview that I did with Meg Lawman, Canopy Meg. I had the great pleasure of talking with Meg and getting to know her work at the opening ceremonies for the Forest Canopy Walk at Vince. It is people such as Meg that I feel that help us restore our hope for the planet. experiences and influences that led you to the treetops? I guess it's because I grew up in a small town and admittedly there wasn't a whole lot to do. No movie theater, no computers in my day, heaven forbid. That kind of dates me, doesn't it? And uh, so we played outdoors and my couple little friends and I used to make tiny tree forts and all sorts of secret things in the woods that we did, finding wildflowers and rescuing baby birds that fell out of nests. So all of those things added up to my having a love for trees. I was pretty shy. I think trees and plants were friendly to me. They weren't threatening, and uh, they were my friends. So I did develop that love at a very young age and continued it. Uh, And then when I went to college, just down the road at Williams College, I picked that college because it had a research forest and that was my first criteria for a campus and then eventually I did my PhD in the tropics seeing the biggest tallest trees in the world was beyond amazing and that was what gave me this curiosity to climb the trees so I guess I could say I was one of the first global arbornauts astronauts study outer space arbornauts study the tops of trees and I actually did my own rigging when I first started out studying the treetops. I had to figure out how to get up there. When you were young, you was there a particular person or did you just love to go out in the woods and had a real affection for trees? It's great you ask me about role models because I think that's really important. And I'm actually writing a pretty major book right now called The Arbornaut about my world as a child where I had no role models. I loved Rachel Carson, but she was deceased and had made that amazing discovery that pesticides kill birds. And then I loved Harriet Tubman, who was long deceased because she had navigated the Underground Railway using moss on the tree trunks at night, which I thought thought was enormously cool. And uh, so my role models were all people whose biographies I read. And I never met a real scientist. I didn't have a science museum nearby or even a nature center. So it was all in my head. And I got read little tiny golden guides to identify plants and birds. It was pretty pathetic, really. And uh, somehow it gave me a passion for nature. So when I applied to colleges for my high school, uh, most people went local. They went to the community college, and I was an outlier, I guess. And I did make a little list of colleges that had research for us and uh, ended up attending Williams, which has its own research for us. Now, they don't have a lot of faculty working there. Most of the students were pre-med. When I got there, I was sorely disappointed not to have a whole bunch of nature friends. But it was a great campus to experience the outdoors 
outdoors because, of course, it's in a small town surrounded by mountains, and that really appealed to me greatly, and I loved the setting. I actually wanted an outdoor major. I thought maybe girls could be forest rangers. Again, I didn't really ever know a woman scientist. I didn't even have a woman science teacher all through school, which is amazing in a public school system. And so I just thought it would be so much fun to work outdoors in nature when I was a grown-up. And so by doing a biology major, even though most everyone else was pre-med, I thought I could manage to study ecology and how nature works a little bit. And um, I had no intention of climbing a tree ever, but I did do a thesis project as a college undergraduate. That was an option, not a requirement. And I did a study of trunk growth in the maples and birches and beech trees in the school forest. And I went every week for two years, rain or shine, snow or sleet, and measured the girth of these trees that I had uh, identified for my thesis. It was became kind of a joke with some of my classmates because they all knew they could go bird watching with me and measure my tree trunks, or they also knew they could have a hangover and say, I don't want to go with you today. So there was a lot of joking around about Meg's tree expeditions. So I did study for my biology major trees, and that's what gave me a passion to continue doing that. So what made you go up? Oh my gosh, do you know, it's funny. I, had, again, was not athletic in my high school, which was not a very fancy um, community. All the girls skipped gym. We didn't have girl sports, We nor did we even think girl sports were something we were supposed to do in those days. So I was not some athletic kid that was wanting to do rock climbing and tree climbing. But when I first went to study the tropical trees. I got a scholarship to Sydney University, which was pretty wild because I think my mom cried and my family thought they'd never see me again. Where's Australia? And I didn't even know where Australia was, but I got to this rainforest for my first time and it was so tall, I couldn't see the tops. I thought, oh my gosh, if I study the trunk, I'm only studying 5% of the whole gosh darn tree. So it dawned on me that somehow I needed to study the whole forest and not just the bottom part, which is kind of dark, a little boring, and actually not a whole lot of things live there. And so I, with my advisor at that time, starting this PhD, which was pretty daunting, um, he said, you need to go up the tree. And I said, couldn't I hire a monkey? Couldn't I use binoculars? Maybe there's some way I don't really have to be there. I could just see it. But he said, no, I think you'll have to work something out. And I was very lucky that Sydney University had a caving club. So I borrowed some ropes from a caving club, and I made a harness with seatbelt webbing and a sewing machine that I borrowed. And I uh, took a piece of metal and welded a slingshot in the, they had a, a little place where people did like repairs of equipment for science and the university. And so off I went with my homemade slingshot, my homemade harness and this rope from the caving club and put the rope over the branch and up I went. And when I got up my first tree, I'll never forget it. Everything was up there. It was alive. It was a hotspot of bugs and 
other plants and birds eating the bugs and guanas eating the bugs and, you know, things eating things eating things and pollinators. And so all of a sudden I realized, holy cow, this is really where the forest is. And so that's what led me on this career as an arbor nut. Which is a wonderful career, I guess. <laughs> it's been adventurous for sure. For those of us who, who have never been there, what is it like to be that high up in the Amazon rainforest? Right. That is kind of my mother always says to me, when are you going to get a real job with an office? <laughs> because I guess my, my office is at the top of a tree somewhere. And to be honest, climbing trees is adventurous. And yes, there's a little bit of risk. But I always tell my students it's much more dangerous to cross Fifth Avenue during rush hour than it is to climb any tree in the world. Uh, to be at the top of the tree is really to be in what I call the eighth continent. It's a whole new world. It's pretty undiscovered. When we say that there are 50% of the species on the planet living in the top of the canopy, something like 90% have never been discovered. So we have all this stuff that we can find up there. And so it makes it very, very exciting. It's a little windy. Sometimes you sway back and forth. I always take my Oreo cookies and some water because you're actually in an extreme environment. To be at the top of the tree is hot and dry, or it's raining really hard for a short period of time if you get a downpour. But um, it's one of those places where you can't help but get a real sense of wonder about this planet. So how important, not only from the trees, but how important is the Amazon rainforest? My gosh, the Amazon is critical for all of us to stay alive. Right now, we are beyond a tipping point, as they call it, for the health of the Amazon. It's a very scary time. But in short, trees do keep us alive. They produce oxygen. They are very important in the gas exchange of many different things, not just oxygen. They store carbon, which is critical in our age of pollution. They keep the soil in place from all floating downstream and going out into the ocean. They house, as I just said, half of the biodiversity in the planet, if not more. They produce medicines for a lot of cultures. They are the only things that do a fabulous job of producing energy from the sun, um, which is really cool. Grasses do that, and so do some of the marine plants, but forests are really, really good at that because they have so many layers of leaves, and they shade us, and they're huge climate control. It's pretty technical, but if you've ever noticed that it rains in forests and then you clear a forest and people say, oh my gosh, it's drier now that we've cleared all the forests, that's because trees are this incredible kind of machine that keeps our rainfall patterns healthy and in check and they absorb the moisture and then they give it off very gently and carefully and so they are so responsible for our climate and if we lose the Amazon which is the biggest forest in the world that's intact we lose that enormous climate control machine that really helps our world stay healthy and so we're on the edge of a pretty big disaster if we lose more. So how did Canopy Walks get started? And what are some of the ones that you're involved with? 
Right. So as I mentioned, I first climbed a tree with my homemade gear, which was pretty primitive. And then I started teaching other people and recruiting volunteers. And I actually got a grant from a very cool operation called Earthwatch, which is headquartered in Boston. They founded Citizen Science in the sense that that's the first group that ever got volunteers to help scientists with their research. So I had Earthwatch volunteers climbing trees with me and I trained them, but it made a lot of people nervous. And I realized I needed to come up with something different from climbing on a rope, which feels a little scary for some people. And sitting one night drinking wine in Australia, as it always happens in Australia with an ecotourist lodge operator, we said, what if we had a trail through the top of the trees and maybe we could build this? And so the first canopy walkway was born in Queensland, Australia in 1985, based on this fun little design we made on a napkin after drinking our bottle of wine, I might add. Um, So I came back from Australia and actually built the first canopy walkway in North America when I was a professor at Williams College. I returned to my college of student years to be a professor, and that was limited, though, just for students. I built a couple others in New England that were also limited, one at Hampshire, one at Millbrook School. Went to Florida and built the first public canopy walkway in North America at Mayaka River State Park outside of Sarasota, Florida. And a couple others along the way have just been part of people seeing one of these and calling me and saying, how do I get hold of the people that helped you build it? And Holden Arboretum developed one, the Adirondacks developed one. And I met Charlie Radigan, the director here, before he was the director here. He was part of a bird app organization and So we did some technology work together, and I said, by the way, you know, Vermont needs a canopy walkway, and lo and behold, he became the director here, and that idea stuck in his head, and he called me and said, who should I call, because I really would like to do this at Vins, and so I gave him the number of one of my best builders in North Carolina that came up here and helped with the design, and the rest is history. Are there other ones in the U.S. that you would recommend? Uh, Two are being constructed right now in Northern California. I'm very excited about that. One at the Eureka Zoo and hopefully another. uh, I've been working with the Yurok Indians um, who have a casino, but they would like to give back to their children and build something in nature. So we're working on a design for them to have a, a walkway in some of their redwood stands in Northern California, which would be fabulous. Um, Holden Arboretum in Ohio is fantastic. Florida is also fantastic because it has a tower in in a flat state. It's really fun to get above the tree line. So there aren't a lot. There are actually more in the tropics than there are in our temperate zone. So I think North America could really use more regional treetop walks so that kids and families can reconnect with their local nature. There's no better way. It's so exciting. It's fun for kids. You can go a hundred times and see something different every time. Talk about when when someone is in a canopy walk. What are some of the things that you recommend that the visitor look for and to help them relate to the work that you're doing? Sure. So a good canopy walkway has had scientists involved in the design, and I say that because there are a few in Costa Rica and some other places that have been built rapidly without any 
context of being able to see the leaves up close. They're just trying to charge admission and have people walk across a path. So not all walkways are equal, number one, but a well-built walkway with a scientist advising and helping to maximize the experience should allow people to get up close and personal with nature. Leaves should be hanging over the walkway and birds should be flitting about. And if you're lucky, you'll get a view of water such as you do here at Vins, so you can maximize some of the biodiversity. And that you have different species of trees. If you built a walkway through a pine plant, plantation, you probably wouldn't see that much. So having big trees and little trees and different species and different ages of trees is really great. So this is a fabulous site here at Vins. They've maximized on all those kinds of experiences. And the neat thing about a walkway is you can go at night, which is pretty tough to do on a rope when you're climbing. You can go in the rain, which is sometimes tough to do on ropes because it's a little bit dangerous. And so you have 24-7 access to this world. In, in my research, for example, most of the insects feed at night. It's, of course, so sensible. They don't get eaten by birds if they feed on the leaves at night. So going out at night with a headlamp is a fabulous way to really learn about the canopy. And if kids and families and also researchers can use a canopy walkway, they have a chance of making new discoveries, perhaps a lot quicker and easier than any other method. Canopy walkways, I think, are poised to really open the door to, I hate to say it, compete with Disney, but in a sense to get kids outdoors and get families outdoors in a way that's really important for the future of our planet and also really important for education and conservation. The public canopy walkway in Florida tripled the visitorship to our state park which was about 20 years ago when that got built, just at a point in time when state parks were absolutely struggling to have visitors at all. I think this walkway here will easily double the visitorship to VINs, which is great. On a global scale, I'm working with a fairly famous biologist called E.O. Wilson at Harvard and a few others. We have a big... I call it the bold, audacious plan uh, to make canopy walkways in the highest biodiversity forests of the world, because if we do that, we have a huge chance of conserving those forests. The temptation to log is great, but if you have local people making money from ecotourism, they won't be tempted to log the trees. And so right now I've got a walkway in the Amazon. We're building one in Mozambique, one in Rwanda, one in Bhutan, one in Malaysia, trying to touch upon these really high biodiverse forests so we don't lose the medicines of the future or the fruits of the forest or the biodiversity that's so extraordinary we might not even know what its use is. And so right now my focus is taking walkways to as many high diversity forests in the world. It's funding. Uh, we had a $10 million plan. We are about $5 million funded, um, but we need to do this in the next 10 years. People are not going to wait if they're in a logging industry and they have an opportunity to cut down a forest which has no other income source right now, the chances are we'll lose that forest. So I'm in a big rush to get this done. 
Do you have your own organization? Yes. So we started a group called treefoundation.org. We have a website, www.treefoundation.org. We get about 3 million hits a year. It's become the go-to place for canopy activities and walkways. Uh, We have donations for people that like to give for projects in the tropics. We also have projects with girls in a lot of these villages to train them as the environmental stewards of the canopy so that they can make a living and become respected in their communities. Of course, as a woman in science, I've suffered my share of being in the minority, so I'm very passionate about this opportunity for girls and women and families. Um, And right now, the Tree Foundation is harboring this bold, audacious plan where we're trying to just make sure that all the walkways of the world are connected. If you need interpretation, if you need a builder, if you have a high biodiversity site and you want to fundraise for conservation, we would love to be the the point persons that can leverage that opportunity to happen quicker and better. So kind of describe how you feel it, that how important What is going on in those treetops is in the future, not just now. Climate change is here now, actually. If you travel with me to Ethiopia, where I also work on canopies, you will be amazed at the droughts, the extreme temperatures. The the people are hungry and they're not getting access to water anymore because they've cut down so many of their trees to grow crops. In Australia, there are huge fires going on. In Indonesia, there are huge fires, not just the Amazon, because climate change is really here and now. Forests and trees are an enormous elixir to all this. They won't reverse all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere 100%, but they will take in a whole bunch of it. And planting trees is a great thing to do for the future. That's one wonderful thing that everybody can and should do in their community. But saving your biggest trees is also important, maybe more important, because it takes hundreds of years to produce an old growth forest or a primary forest, as we call them. So the more we can save our wealth well-developed forests with canopy walkways or some level of outdoor recreation that allows people to feel value from the trees, um, the better off we are. Trees are valuable even if you leave them alone, but unfortunately human beings seem to want to cut them down more than I can ever admit. I'm horrified to know that and see that, and obviously we've watched that happen all too often. But saving big trees and planting new trees are two amazing things that everybody can and should do right now, today, yesterday actually, to make a difference for the future. Why does wildness matter? That's a great question. Why does wildness matter? Two things come to mind to me. Number one, there's not a lot of wildness left. We have absolutely uh, gone in and created quilting throughout all of nature. In fact, most of us who are in the profession of science now study how can humans be interacting with nature in the most minimum footprint possible. We realize that we can't be absent from nature. We have to figure out how to integrate with nature better. 
But when you have a little tiny chance to experience wildness, even a kid sitting in a field and getting under the level of the daisies so they can't see out of it, or even somebody who experiences quiet at night and there's no traffic going by, those precious moments do, I think, reflect in our soul. We are obviously a species out of many millions of species, and we did come from the same kinds of past histories of all the other species in a way we might think we've evolved beyond, but we really are equal and we have every single chance of becoming extinct as well. So I think the ability to consider and keep our position in nature and occasionally be humbled by nature is just a really important spiritual part of our life. You've already kind of talked quite a bit about it, but what your, your future? Oh my gosh. I would like to give back to girls in science and I'd like to give back to communities and make sure that trees remain a, an important part of our landscape. My own passion for trees is partly because I'm a mom and I have two boys. So even though I'm a big advocate for girls in science and very passionate about that, I'm equally excited about getting boys in science too. And I think as a mom, I see the future with some anxiety because I think what we're doing to the planet is going to make it really tough for our kids and grandkids. So I just encourage everybody who listens to your program or has any concern for the future or any offspring that might be part of the future, or even if you don't have offspring, you should be thinking to yourself, we need to keep nature. It's essential for all life on earth. And I really feel that strongly as both a mom and a scientist equally. And then one last thing, and then I'll let you go. Can you once again describe your experience at this particular canopy walk? So this walkway is over the top, no pun intended. <laughs> it's just fantastic. I am absolutely blown away with joy for all of the residents of New England, for all of the people from probably all over the world who will want to come here. It's a fantastic accomplishment, and I can't wait to come back. I'd like to bring my sleeping bag and be in the canopy all night. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to give people insight and appreciation and love for the nature of New England. my conversation with Meg Lohman. We will be staying in touch with Meg and hope to hear from her in the future. Please visit her website, treefoundation.org, to learn more about the great work she is doing. I would also like to thank everyone who has been following Nature Revisited. Podcasts are measured in listenership, and that is our next challenge. So, if I might ask that if you enjoy Nature Revisited, that you not only share, but encourage your friends, family, and colleagues to listen to Nature Revisited. The music for this episode, Canopy Meg, is performed by Martin Decato. You can learn more about him and his music at decatosanbornmusic.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden, and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next episode when we talk with Scott Stokey. Until then, remember, 
We are nature. Canopy man, canopy man, studies insects in the trees above your head. Canopy man, canopy man, studies bugs in the trees above your head. Canopy man, canopy man, studies insects in the trees above your head. Above your head. 